0: Hey everybody, it's Jackie, and uh, before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about two things I'm offering. Um, starting September like 6-ish, I think it is, I'm going to be doing a three-week study on the story of the exodus, and I'm going to be doing it in person in Dallas, Chapel, and Austin. So check out, if you're in those areas, check out on the website, more information, how to register, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, I'm going to be doing, for the very first time, I'm going to be offering the She Can Teach course online, starting September 1st. We'll be going every Thursday until October 6th. And this course is really for any woman who wants to learn how to study the Bible better, or thinks that she may have the gift of teaching, or is already teaching the Bible but needs more skills. Or for any woman who just wants to learn how to use her voice for Jesus. Again, you can go to our website, find the information there. So um, I'm going to repost an episode that I did a while back, and I'm reposting it because I kind of need the reminder. I need the reminder that I'm supposed to use my status, my power, and my position for the vulnerable. And so today we're going to hear some stories of women in the Bible and about Gracie and Laura and boogers. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off the record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women at work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Gracie. She lived down the road. She came from a really poor family, always wore the same clothes to school day after day. Her pants never came past her ankles. You know, they were high waters. She was one of the stops on our bus. And when she got on the bus, there was always something about her I liked, but I didn't want her to sit next to me. I'm ashamed to say that. But I was in the cool kid crowd, and I didn't really want to be associated with Gracie. You know, I was one of those kids that had status, and she didn't. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, which is really one of my all-time fave books, defines status as such. Status, at its root, is where you stand. It's about your place in the line. It's about the human drive to be ranked above another, to be counted more worthy than another, it is the subtle calculations we often make when we enter a room sizing up who's the most popular, who's the most pretty, who's the most powerful. Status is about counting, numbering, ranking, and ultimately about excluding. Yeah, I had status. Gracie didn't. And I wish that I could say that how I treated her back then is is you know the was because I was so young and I didn't know any better, and I, I don't do that anymore today. But that's not totally true, because there's also Laura. Laura is a transgendered woman who came to one of my Bible studies. And it was my first time that I'd ever actually engaged or knew of a person who was transitioning. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this too, but it felt weird at first. I, I didn't really know how to engage her. I wish I didn't have to admit that, but it's true. And her presence created a bit of an angst in our Bible study because there were women in that Bible study who didn't want her there. And they even let me know. They texted and emailed, hey, I, if you're okay with her being in the Bible study, then I'm not so sure I can stay. And I knew full well that her being in my Bible study and my saying that it was okay was going to affect my reputation as a conservative evangelical Bible teacher. I mean, people label you and they leave your Bible studies, and they withhold support and jobs. So yeah, there's Gracie, and there's Laura. So let me ask you, who's your person or people group that you tend to put at the back of your line, so to speak? Maybe, I mean, just maybe, that person is you. You've ranked yourself, and you've put yourself at the back of your line. We do that, don't we? And I wonder, If we could invite Jesus into this idea of our ranking and ordering and ultimately excluding. And I want to invite him in through his scriptures, particularly um, what we see happening in Mark chapter 7. If you go to your Bibles in Mark chapter 7, what you find is that Jesus is in the middle of a clash with the religious leaders. They are upset with him and his followers because they aren't washing their hands. And that was a really big deal. And no, not because they were in the middle of a pandemic. Let me give you some context. See, back then, the Romans had moved in. They took possession of their land. And now they are living amongst the Romans. And the Romans are crossing lines everywhere. They are defiling everything that was Jewish. And they are doing it intentionally everything that set the Jews apart. They occupied their land. They entered their temple. Yeah, that was a big slap in the face. They even forced some Jews to eat pork. Jews didn't eat pork. It was just one of the ways that they distinguished themselves from other people, who was Jewish and who wasn't, identity markers. And the Romans were defiling those identity markers all over the place. And so slow but surely... They couldn't really tell anymore what distinguished themselves from the Romans, right? It started to blend. It started to get blurred. And so the religious leaders created fences. Think about a fence you put around your yard. That'll help you. Fences. A bunch of lists of rules surrounding the scriptures. Things that you can do and can't do. All for the purpose, by the way, to establish new identity markers, to keep the Jewish faith, the the people separate, distinct, and pure while being occupied by the Romans, a way to know who's in and who's out kind of thing. And so Jesus isn't washing and nor are his followers. And what's up with that? Well, Jesus gathers the crowd together and says, all of you listen and try to understand it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. He says this in Mark chapter seven, verse 14, and the disciples, who, by the way, they are hanging out with God in the flesh. It says they don't get it. They're like, what are you talking about in this whole thing, this whole clash about what's clean and what's, we don't get it. Can you just see them? They're frowning. They got a furrow on their head and their, their heads tilted like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, How many times have we done this to Jesus? What are you talking about, Jesus? You see, their whole lives they had learned about what was clean and unclean. It was so natural to them, like like breathing air. And now Jesus says, nope, none of that matters. It's what's on the inside. And they just can't get past it. It's like if I said to you, recently scientists have discovered that eating your boogers is healthy for you. Yes, you heard that right. It's actually true. Scientists have discovered that eating your boogers is healthy for you. It turns out it strengthens your body's immune system. But when I say that to you, there's this instinctual, like, oh, gross me out, Jackie. Why? Because your mother told you, don't do it, right? She scolded you. It was ingrained in you from the very beginning of your movement on earth. Bad, gross, don't do it. So much so that even if you know a bunch of scientists are now saying, hey, you can do it, you're like, yeah, not gonna. Well, that's exactly where the disciples were as Jesus is talking about what's clean and what's not clean, and they're going, what? And Jesus really needs them to get this simple lesson because there's a bigger one about to happen. And if they can't get the clean, unclean thing, well, then they're going to miss what he's about to reveal about who God is and why he has come. So this clash happens, and then they head out of town, about 20 miles into Gentile territory, and they're tired. And they sit down for a meal, and they're lounging, and they're talking, and then we read about this woman who comes along, and not just any particular kind of woman will get there. But for now, let me say this: to those disciples who are Jewish, in their culture, women gained worth or status based on their ability to marry and give birth, not just to any gendered. They can't. It's not just about giving birth to girls. They ha- They get status. By giving birth to boys. The more boys they have, the higher the status. So three things that give them status. Marriage, giving birth to sons, and bringing honor to their husband's name. That is what gives a woman worth. That's what her status is based on. And in Israel, a Jewish mama had mad respect. Don't get me wrong. And she even had some power. But that power was always underneath the power of her husband, father, or brother. She may have been valued, but she was behind the man in the line. And that's exactly how these Jewish disciples, sitting with Jesus, view women. This is how they view Jewish women. They, like their fathers, have prayed daily, Blessed are you, O king of the universe, for not making me a Gentile slave or woman. Yeah, they prayed that daily. And so you need to keep that in mind, that this is how they would have seen Jewish women and where Jewish women would stand in the line. Now consider her. She's a woman, but she's not a Jewish woman. She's a Gentile woman. In fact, the text tells us she's from Canaanite descent. I mean, you just don't get any lower. Different race, ethnicity, foreign accent, different gods. Did I mention she's a woman? Forget about being in the back of the line. In these guys' mind, she's not even in the line, and that's the point. Verse 24 through 25, we read that she approaches Jesus in the home where they're staying. It says, right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. An evil spirit possessed her little daughter, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Now, I want you to see the scene. Right about now, what are the guys doing at the table? They're kind of freaking out. Think about their body language. Their eyes are rolling. Heads are tilting. What does she think? How does she get in here? Yep, for sure, they are ranking, ordering, numbering, and definitely excluding. And then Jesus does this thing that's always been a bit disconcerting to me. in, In verse 27, he calls her a dog. Now, that's not a very nice thing to say to anyone. He said, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, is Jesus ranking and ordering and excluding here? It kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Except that doesn't line up with the Jesus I know. He calls her a dog. I had to do some digging on that because it just didn't make sense. What was the context? You know, some scholars say that he's wanting to show that he really values persistent faith, and I'm like, yeah, hmm. It kind of still bugs me that he calls her a dog. i got to figure that out. And then I started thinking about, just before this occurrence with her, we have this clash between the religious leaders and Jewish and Jesus and his disciples about hand-washing and what's clean and what's not clean and this whole new paradigm shift that Jesus is trying to make happen. And he says to the woman, don't you know I'm here for the Jews first? And then he calls her a dog. Now, first off, let me tell you that the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, the kind of dogs that I have seen in the developing world. That's the kind of word they used, those dogs that roam the streets and they're scraggly-looking and dirty and scab-infested scavengers. Yeah, that's what the Jews called Gentiles. But that's not the word that Jesus used in reference to this woman. He used a different word. The word dog that he used refers to a house pet. Our house pets are what? Part of the family. No, that can't be what Jesus is saying, because let's be honest, she's a Gentile woman from the Canaanite descent. Jesus tells the Gentile woman, don't you know I'm here for the Jew first? No, she doesn't know this. In fact, she does not know this. Why? Because that's Old Testament stuff. That's Jewish stuff, not Gentile stuff. Now think about what it said in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God talked about sending his son to both the Jews and the Gentiles. In Genesis 17, he told Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. And in Psalm 87, he he lists the many nations. Even Gentile nations will come to faith. And Isaiah reminded the Jews in Isaiah 49 that the Messiah was coming for Jews and Gentiles. So back in chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus chose the disciples, the ones that he would give the job to carry forth his work on earth after he departed. But he knew that these Jewish people would never consider him to be for her. She's she's subhuman, just like we used to view black people. Slave owners viewed black people, right? This is how Jewish people would view her, and it was so ingrained. It was so strong. It would supersede anything that they could have even noticed in the sacred text. And I wonder if that's true with us too. If we miss what Jesus thinks of those who we well have put way back there. And man, this has got to speak to us not only as individuals in America today, but as a country as a whole. Yeah, those people we put in the back of the line. And Jesus asked her, don't you know? No, she didn't know because that was in the Old Testament. And she doesn't know the Old Testament because she's a Gentile. But who in the room did know the Old Testament? Yeah, the disciples. You see, when we hear this conversation, we get so focused on the detail between Jesus and this woman. But what if that's the subplot and the main plot is that Jesus needs his disciples to get something, something that was so counterintuitive to how they'd been raised, like eating boogers. I see Jesus looking at them. Can you picture the room? He's like, he, called, he says to her, don't you know? And then he looks over at them like, come on, guys, think back. What, what in scripture did it say about the Messiah? That he would come for the Jew and, come on, guys, fill in the blank. I need you to get this. I need you to get your mind around this. I have come not only for you, but her and them and them. See, Jesus was creating a new way of living with others, a new kingdom society, and he needed his followers, the ones that he was going to leave behind to carry on. He needed them to get that. Now, why do I say this is what's happening in that text? Well, so glad you asked. Because if we fast forward to Acts 10, What we see is Jesus has already ascended, and the spirit has arrived, and the disciples are on the move. They are telling, showing, and living like Jesus. Now, when I say they are telling people about Jesus, yes, I'm talking about them having people come to faith in Jesus, but we sometimes think of that as like an intellectual decision and then, you know, like, we're all good. No, not back then. Because when one said yes to Jesus as the Messiah, it was an all-encompassing game-changer. He's talking about new family, new way of living, new everything. Okay, so back to Acts 10, where we read that Peter has a dream. And in this dream, he is eating unclean food. And in 10.14, he says, I have never in all my life eaten anything forbidden by our Jewish laws. And the voice says to him, If God says something is acceptable, don't say it isn't. And Peter's a bit perplexed by his dream. And then these servants knock on his door and ask him if he'll he'll come to the house of Cornelius, a a Roman officer. Yes, a Gentile. And Peter goes. And Cornelius invites him in. And in verse 28, Peter says, you know it's against the Jewish law for me to come into a Gentile home like this. But God has shown me that I should never think of anyone as impure. And Peter goes on to ask them what they want. And Cornelius says, well, I want to know about Jesus. And he tells them. And Cornelius' whole family comes to faith. Now, remember, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's in the back of the line, right? But Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that now, now that he has professed his faith, he's actually Peter's brother. They're of one faith, one family. See, it's not just about a profession of faith. Jewish people always associated faith with action. This would change how these two men, how these two families actually engaged and related with each other. I don't know about you, but I'm good with people coming to faith, but I'm not always thrilled about having to sit next to Gracie on the bus. That's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? But here's what we have. Beginning in Mark chapter 7, we have a clash with these religious leaders about clean versus unclean. And afterwards, the disciples get away with Jesus, and they do that tilting the head, you know, furrowing, like, I don't get it. Matthew 15, 15 tells us who said that statement. I don't get it. Do you know who said it? I bet you can guess. Yeah, it was Peter. It was Peter. And then we have the encounter with this most unclean woman alive in the whole universe. And in Mark seven twenty four, Jesus asked, don't you know I've come from the, for the Jew first? Come on, guys, think. I need you to fill in the blank. Think about what God's sacred text really said about this. And then in Acts 10, we have Peter saying to Cornelius, God has shown me that I should never think of anyone as impure. Now, where did Peter get that? Yes, from the seeds planted by Jesus as he engaged this Syrophoenician woman. So is it possible we have these biased, prejudiced and loyalties that are so ingrained, whether that be about race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic, sexual identity, political preferences, I could go on and on. Is it possible we have these bias and prejudice about who's worthy and who's not, and that it's so ingrained in us that we don't even realize that it defiles God's word, let alone the very essence of who Jesus is? Is that possible? And I wonder if Jesus is sitting with us right about now. And our Gracie and Laura's are there too, by the way. And Jesus is looking at them, and then he's looking at us, and he's saying, don't you know? Come on, Jackie, I need you to get this. The Gracie's and Laura's who are made in my image, Jackie, I need you to get this. I'm forming a whole new kind of way of living with and for others. So I've been asking myself, how do I stop ranking and ordering and ultimately excluding others? i got to be honest with you, it's really hard. And I also have to ask, how am I using my status, my power, my position to the help those who've been put at the end of the line? You know, Andy Crouch says that power is rooted in creation and was used for flourishing of all individuals and the cosmos. Let me say that again. Power is rooted in creation and was used for the flourishing of all individuals and the cosmos. If that's true, power is rooted in creation and meant for flourishing. That means that the test for how I use my power and my position and my status would be the flourishing of others. God uses his power to help others flourish. So how am I doing? And I need to ask How are you? How are you doing with the Gracies and Lauras in your life? Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.